Hello and welcome to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. I'm your host Nick Skinner and this week I'm joined by Peter Delapena to discuss the recently concluded T20 World Cup Americas qualifier. But before we get to the interview, there's a few news stories around the cricketing world to cover first, which we'll aim to discuss in more detail on a future pod. First, and probably most significantly, is genuine progress on cricket being included in the Olympics. The LA 2028 Local Organising Committee has put forward cricket, along with uh, baseball, softball, flag football, lacrosse and squash, uh, for potential inclusion at the Games, with the International Olympic Committee now set to make a final decision on whether to approve the sports as its session gathers over the next few days. On the field, there is of course the Netherlands at the Cricket World Cup. Unfortunately for fans of Associate Nations, the Dutch have lost their first two matches against Pakistan and New Zealand, but we'll certainly be following their campaign in great detail as the tournament goes on, and do head over to emergingcricket.com to follow our match reports and other analysis. Away from the big stage in India, and the West Africa Trophy is being held in Lagos, with the men's teams of Sierra Leone, Ghana and Rwanda joining hosts Nigeria. The triple round robin tournament doubles as a tune-up for Nigeria and Rwanda ahead of their appearance at the African Regional Final in November, where the final two African slots for the 2024 T20 World Cup will be decided. And after the group stage of the West Africa Trophy, Nigeria are undefeated, never having really been in trouble. Uh, they, they won all their matches pretty comfortably. While things have been pretty tight between Rwanda and Ghana, including a tie, which Ghana won in a super over, and Sierra Leone even managed a win, beating Rwanda in a two-run thriller. But Rwanda have made it to the final, edging out Ghana on net run rate. So they'll go up against the hosts on the 15th of October. Over in Nepal, meanwhile, and some more men's cricket with a tri-nation series between the hosts, Hong Kong and UAE, getting underway from the 18th of October. It's a double round robin being played entirely at Mulpani, except for the final at the TU ground, and it serves as a warm-up ahead of the Asian regional final in the qualifying ladder, which determines the final two Asian slots at the T20 World Cup. One element to keep an eye on in this tri-series is the Mulpani ground, which has hosted a solitary League 2 ODI, but is otherwise untested after a fairly eventful construction process. So... Uh, the Tri-Nation series will serve as a test for the facilities as well as the teams. Elsewhere in the Asia region, and the Asian Cricket Council continues to show why it's the gold standard in regional development bodies as it hosts a 16-team qualifying tournament for the men's under-19s Asia Cup, scheduled to be played in Pakistan in December. The qualifier is being held in Malaysia and it's already underway with teams divided into four groups of four, followed by a playoff stage with just three qualifying slots available to the main event. And the full list of competing teams is Bahrain, China, Hong Kong, Indonesia, Iran, Japan, Kuwait, Malaysia, Maldives, Nepal, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, Thailand and the UAE. The tournament runs until the 24th of October and matches are being streamed for free on the Asian Cricket Council's YouTube channel. And that's the news for now, so it's time to hear from Peter Delapena. I'm Paul Redley, sports writer for The National in the UAE. You're listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Welcome to a special guest on the Emerging Cricket Podcast, a good friend of the show, 
and of all of us involved in the project, Peter Delapena. Thanks for having me back. Always good to chat. And while the world's attention has been focused on the Cricket World Cup, there's been a tournament in Bermuda that's been uh, taking up most of the attention on the island rather than the World Cup, uh, the Americas qualifier for the T20 World Cup next year. Four teams participating Canada, Bermuda, the hosts, obviously, Cayman Islands, and Panama. Now, out of those four, it basically was a two-horse race between Bermuda and Canada, and we saw that with the tournament uh, bookended with our big wins to Canada and Bermuda on the two Saturdays, the 30th of September and the 7th of October. Now, Bermuda won by 86 runs on the first day, and then Canada won by 39 runs on the last Saturday. In between, both teams won very comprehensively against the other two teams. Cayman Islands beat Panama, but there was also a couple of no results. So, you know, more or less what we expected, except for the, that first day where uh, Bermuda really shocked Canada with, with a, a comprehensive upset. Kamal Levrock, Delray Rawlins kind of leading the charge there with the bat, posting 181 for 9 in 20 overs. And then with the ball, Canada really fell in a heap. Uh, CJ Outerbridge grabbed three for 18, and the, the rest of the bowlers backed him up pretty effectively. Kamal Leverock also bowled well. Canada's batting looked really dismal in, in that first game, and, and you know you kind of thought, wow, is, is this going to be a, <laughs> another disastrous tournament for a, a visiting um, uh, you know North American team to Bermuda? But uh, they turned it around. They beat the other two teams, Panama and Cayman Islands, very comprehensively to get their net run rate comfortably ahead of Bermuda. So the match on the final... Final day between the two teams uh, was effectively a knockout game, and Canada came through in that last match. Um, it seemed like there was very good crowd engagement, uh, some nice pictures of you and Lenny having a good time, uh, good vibe throughout the island. Uh, what was it like being there on the ground? It was kind of bizarre on the final day because, especially after the victory that Bermuda had on day one, there was so much excitement and anticipation at the ground at the National Sports Center on the final day with fans not hoping but really expecting that Bermuda was going to be able to beat Canada again. I mean, coming into the the tournament, Bermuda had lost to Canada in every completed T20 match that they had ever played against each other. First time they had played was back in 2010 when the ICC Americas first began to go for T20 tournaments instead of 50 over events. And they had seven matches completed, won no result. Canada had always beaten them, and by pretty wide margins as well. And the matches were never really competitive. And so to see Bermuda on day one throttle Canada was quite shocking. And, you know, it wasn't like they scraped over the line. They, they, they smacked them around pretty good. And keeping that in mind, everybody who showed up at the ground was believing, hey, this is no accident. This is no fluke. Bermuda's going to do it again. And they had a reasonable chance to win, considering the total that they kept Canada down to, 132 for four. And that's in spite of the fact that they conceded 20 runs off the final over. Nicholas Curtin went berserk in the final over the innings in the match reduced to 18 overs. Otherwise, Canada would have been around 115, 120, they got from 112 to 132 off that final over. And even still, though, you'd say 132 in an 18-over chase is manageable, but the way they came out in the chase was just very timid. They looked nervous. They did not look confident. You have to remember in the first match, they batted first 
I think they played with a lot more freedom batting first versus coming to out to chase in the rematch. They just didn't look as comfortable. And the fact that this is something that came up on the broadcast, I feel they made a tactical error by not promoting Alan Douglas Jr. to bat at number three at the fall of the first wicket. Instead, they stayed with Taron Frey, who really struggled all tournament. He ended up top scoring in the chase with 30 off 35 balls, but that doesn't really tell the whole story because he really put a lot of pressure on both Kamal Levrock as the leading scorer in the tournament. It was named tournament MVP, but Taron Frey, his scores coming into that innings were five, four, and eight. Didn't bat in the fourth game that Bermuda played. And so he'd only had 17 runs in three innings and he just looked really out of form and, and to put him in at number three in a, a chase where you're playing for a spot in the World Cup compared to Alan Douglas, who played with a lot more confidence, a lot more freedom in the tournament. It just weighed Bermuda down quite heavily, and that pressure built on Kamal Levrock. Not only pressure, but he just lacked rhythm. Kamal Levrock could never get on strike. He finally gets out in the first ball, the 10th over to Nikhil Dutta, trying to kind of force a, a big hit. And then five balls later, at the end of the over, Delray Rollins, the other big gun bat for Bermuda, again, because of the pressure that Taron Frey was putting by soaking up so many dot balls, he tries to force another shot, reaching out to play a sweep that was way far outside of his body, outside of somebody, produces a top edge and, and gets caught. So Nikhil Dutt to that 10th over, it's really a back-breaking over, and, and kind of I, I felt like, Bermuda got their tactics wrong, especially in the chase. Uh, I mean, wind played a huge factor that day, but Canada was very intelligent with how they utilized the wind when they were batting with the wind at the back and, and batting into the wind. They, they didn't really take many risks trying to hit into the wind, and they, they took most of their calculated risks hitting with the wind at the back. Coming off a of tropical storm, Philippe, there was 35, 40-mile-an-hour winds that day, and Bermuda, by comparison, just did not really – utilized the wind as well as they should have on the batting side. And Canada also got the benefit of seeing what lengths to bowl and which bowlers they should be bowling from which ends by having batted in the first innings and seeing where Bermuda went wrong, especially in that last over, that 20th over, when, when Nicholas Curtin went big for 19 of the 20 runs in that final over. Again, it, it gave Canada some insight in terms of which bowlers they should be bowling from which ends to not get punished in terms of the wind conditions. And so we add all those things up tactically. Bermuda just really fell short, whereas Canada got their tactics really spot on on the final day, and that played a huge role in, in winning that match and going to the World Cup for the first time. Yeah, I think the tactical element is worth pointing out, especially, you know, you think about the head coach, Pibu Dudasanayaka, is uh, reputed to be a bit of a, uh, you know, bit of a genius at getting teams to the World Cup in, in terms of... Um, you know his his success rate with with various sides, including Canada. You know the last time Canada were at a World Cup was was when Pabuda Dasanayake was was coaching them. Of course, the 50 over version in in 2011. So you know that's that's a long time ago. But um, just just on the the tactical side of things, you know you you look at that that match that you know the last game um, where Bermuda. I think overall they bowled pretty well they as as you say they they sort of set the template in in terms of you know Canada copying them with 
the lengths and and you know the styles of bowlers to to bowl uh, at various points in the match. I think there's a couple of missed tricks there though. You know, you look Delray Rawlins only bowled three overs despite going for just 11 runs. CJ Outerbridge who went for 10 runs in his three overs, you know, that's another over up his sleeve. So you've you've got two overs between two bowlers who who had a better record and Outerbridge of course took uh, three wickets for not very many runs in the first match against Canada and he he looked Pretty threatening all tournament, very tidy, and uh, you know he hasn't been in the team for Babunda for I think coming on five years now. I, I remember when we were in Malaysia a few years back, he was he was there. I think it was was it World Cricket League Division Four, but I haven't seen him since. So um, it'd be I mean, it's kind of interesting to see him uh, you know breaking back into the team. Um, I think is he, is he still I'd say about 26, 27, so he's still got a few years. Uh, left on the clock, and and yeah, I was very impressed with his performances, and and on the spin side, obviously Rawlins bowled well in that game, exploiting the sluggish pitch. Uh, Dominic Sabir was pretty good. Derek Brangman, the the veteran spin bowler, so you know they had some good options there, and you know Brangman only bowled two overs again. So it it, it it's a bit strange that they have all these guys who bowled very well, but but didn't finish their quota. I mean the biggest error in that sequence was Delray Rollins not bowling for and he's only got himself to blame he's the captain for god's sake so <laughs> yeah. you know he he bowled a maiden in the ninth over which was his second over I believe and then he took himself off and at the time me and Andrew Leonard were looking at each other like what's he doing uh, <laughs> it was just a very strange decision <laughs> we thought at the time and if anything he did Canada a favor. If you're a Canada batter, coming off that, that maiden, you're thinking to yourself, oh, thank God. You don't have to face him anymore. And I just, again, there was a number of decisions and, and kind of tactical miscues that Bermuda had, and that was one of the first ones of the day, that you've you've got momentum going from one end with the ball. And the captain, who was their best bowler on the day, not only takes himself out, but he doesn't bowl a full quota. And that was just a very peculiar decision we thought at the time. And and that wasn't hindsight. You know, we said it at the time on air. Um, when you've got a World Cup spot on the line, your captain's got to be, if he's a, a bowler, leading bowler, and he was bowling as well as he was, why on earth is he coming out of the attack? And, and we thought, all right, he's, he's just, you know, trying to, keep them off balance, he'll rotate some bowlers in, and then he's he's going to bring himself back to bowl out the full four at a later point, and he didn't. And we just found that to be very strange. Well, especially in, you know, you look at the, the stats, Rollins went for no boundaries at all in his three overs. So, yeah, clearly it was difficult to get away. And Brangman as well in his two overs went for no boundaries, and CJ Adderbridge went for one boundary in his three overs. So between the three of them, that's a full bowling quota of guys with overs up their sleeve and, you know, one boundary between eight overs. So, yeah, very, very strange uh, decision-making from the captain. I I don't know if it would necessarily have made a huge difference. I I just want to look at Nicholas Curtin there, who was in the mood to to start hitting. I've been critical of Curtin in the past. Um, I I think, and and I I stand by this statement that, you know, his place in the team has often been this kind of uh, associate logic of oh well he plays domestically in the West Indies so he must be good so we, we've got to select him when you know his form hasn't necessarily merited it in the past but he was he was pretty good in this tournament he looks to have found a higher gear in terms of actually accelerating you know his t20 career until this point I think his strike rate was under 100 uh, so 
if he's found the ability to start actually, you know, hitting big, you know, the ingredients are there. I agree with Andrew Leonard. He's he's actually got a pretty good technique. There's no reason he can't be a better T20 player, but he just hasn't produced until now. Do you think he's turning a corner or is it a false dawn? I think the sample set for what he's demonstrated is still relatively small in terms of turning the corner positively. You know, 26 on out off 10 balls in a must-win World Cup qualifier match is pretty significant, two fours and two sixes, you know, but that goes against type for what he's done for the rest of his T20i career. Yeah, coming into the tournament, he'd had seven or eight innings in, in T20i's, and his career strike rate was comfortably under 100. And suddenly, in this tournament, the last two days in particular is where he exploded. The second day of the tournament against Cayman Islands, he follows up a three against Bermuda by scoring 31 off 33 balls at number five against Cayman Islands. And again, that was that was a typical Nicholas Curtin innings. Yes, that's what I expect from Curtin. Yeah, he's scratching around. He's He's kind of in love with his technique in terms of you know, not wanting to take risks and showcase, you know, shadow batting and mirror batting and look at how perfect my my forwards, you know, single stroke down the ground is and that kind of thing. <laughs> and it's, you know, no, you gotta you gotta do more than that. You gotta be willing to take some risks. And you started to see him come out of his shell in the game against Cayman Islands, which was the second what wound up being the second to last match when he scored 32 off 15 balls, again, two fours and two sixes. And you th- looked at him and you thought, ooh, you know, where has this guy been all all the time he's played with Canada? Why hasn't he done this before? And then he showed it was no accident a couple of days later against Bermuda when, when he did it again. And if he can do that on a more regular basis, then he would be a tremendous asset for Canada because the total package Nicholas Pertin Curtin, excuse me. The total package of Nicholas Curtin is that it wasn't just those finishes. I mean, he was their best round fielder. He still is prone to the odd bobble in the air, but in terms of his foot speed on the ground, he was by far the best fielder in the tournament in terms of denying second runs. It wasn't even close. He, he's quick to the ball, has a quick release, so you're never going to be able to take two runs off of him. And his running between the wickets, again, he's lightning between the wickets, which can be good and bad because what he thinks is two runs is not two runs for most of his partners. So he's always somebody who's a run out risk <laughs> in terms of getting into a tangle with his partner. Um, but you, you see the hustle is the important thing. You see the hustle, you see the effort. Those are th- the traits that you like to see. And it's just a matter of continuing to build up chemistry with his partners in that sense to, to make sure that runouts don't happen. But his running between the wickets was just as crucial in that final game. I mean, when he, when he wasn't on strike, when he was at the crease, again, Bermuda, you look at the way they approached their batting, I think I counted it up during the broadcast. Canada had 10 twos and one three, or, or nine twos and one three, and, and Bermuda only had three twos the entire chase. And a lot of those twos were kind of the result of Curtin just making up his mind, no matter what, I'm going for two here we need to take on the fielders, put pressure on the fielders. 
and Bermuda did not respond well to that in the field. Bermuda were, were lethargic to the ball. Bermuda took their time releasing the ball, and Canada just said, and also it was a fact of, again, recognizing the wind. Canada knew which side of the field they could take risks running to because, all right, this fielder is throwing directly into the wind. No matter how hard he throws it, he's not going to be able to get it through the wind. We're going to be able to take two, two runs, whereas Bermuda, there seemed to be, again to be a lack of recognition of, all right, this fielder is throwing into the wind. If we can reasonably take a calculated risk here to try for a second run, there was really none of that. And so all those things add up, and and they go back to Curtin. I mean, everything Curtin was doing, his, his match awareness, his game awareness, for those kind of subtle things in terms of which way the wind is blowing when I'm hitting, which way the wind is blowing when I'm trying to take a second run on a fielder's arm. He was very, very keenly aware of, of these subtle things, and that made a huge difference. And, you know, we saw it in two games. If you see it over the course of two years, three years, five years, he could be a, a tremendous impact player for Canada. We've seen it in two games. The overall body of work for Curtin is is a lot more than two games where he hasn't done these things. Mm. You know, going back to the, the one of the first times, if not the first time I saw him, was, was at the, at least from the Canadian perspective, infamous 2018 World Cricket League Division Two tournament where they lost on the final day to Nepal off the last ball. Um, you know, going back to then, he hasn't performed. This is two games where he has for Canada. You, you need a lot more than two games to kind of overturn the opinions that have been shaped over the course of the previous five years. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. I, <laughs> Whenever I see Curtin in the team sheet, I'm, I'm immediately suspicious, especially in, in the T20 format. But, it, you know, as, as you say, if he can bring that form forward to the World Cup, you know, combined with some of the other performers for Canada, um, Kaleem Sana was good throughout the tournament. Um, you know, Hush Tucker has been hard to get away. The Canadian batting, I think actually at the top, Looks pretty solid. The Aaron Johnson, Navneet Daliwal's back in the team after a, a, a break, I, I think because he was um, unable to get time off work for a couple of tournaments recently. Um, you, you know, you would think he'd be coming back for, for the World Cup. Shramantha uh, Wujaratna is out of retirement. You know, that Canadian lineup starts to look pretty threatening, I think, uh, as far as associate presence at the T20 World Cup goes and then yeah we there's a you know they, they bat deep there's Nikhil Dura, Saad Bin Zafar can all uh, sort of bash it around um, and and even with the ball they, they do have some other options as well as the, the spin combinations there um, even, even Jeremy Gordon you know the way that they deployed him in the second match against Bermuda I think showed that they'd learned from the first game where he got absolutely pasted coming in first up and, and you, you know, in the power play, Kamal Levrock really took a liking to, to Gordon. But uh, in the second match, they deployed him uh, much later in the game and his extra pace against middle to lower order batters really allowed them to, to kill off the chase for Bermuda. And it even resulted in a, a very uh, a frustrating run out that, um, you know, Alan Douglas Jr. wasn't very happy about. But, uh, yeah, looking forward to the World Cup, I don't think Canada should be worried about embarrassing themselves. I think they, they're a chance to win a couple of games. Well, it's not just the guys you mentioned, but there's also other people potentially you haven't mentioned. Will Nitish Kumar decide he wants to come out of mm. his whatever you want to call it for Canada? Okay, maybe maybe you can clear this up a bit, actually, because I've, we, I've heard some mixed reports, but is he not playing for Canada due to some 
minor league stuff because the minor league now is bringing in Canadian qualified players. Uh, so potentially that sort of allows him to actually play for Canada without giving up his minor league position. Well, regardless of minor leagues, the, the bigger issue is major leagues. He's, he's a contracted uh, major league cricket player. And so he's considered a local and, and residing in the USA as a local for major league cricket. And the minor league is immaterial now because they've changed their rules for, for that to accommodate Canada players. But if he's living in Texas year-round, it's ostensibly with an eye potentially to qualify to get picked for USA. He's never publicly stated one way or another. But now that Canada's qualified for the T20 World Cup, he's somebody who, depending on where they are scheduled, if he's playing games in Texas year-round and he's played at the stadium in Grand Prairie and he's become accustomed to that, and he did fairly well in Major League Cricket last year, all things considered. Does he want to come back and play for Canada? It's a very interesting question. Uh, and A, and B, would Canada want him back? You know, he's he's taken a stance where he's he's not been part of the qualifying campaign. And so, you know, this this squad, do they want to stick with, you know, who got him, took him to the dance, or do they want to, you know, leave and, and, and ask somebody else? Um, you know, it's, it's a very... Uh, multi-pronged question and and kind of topic that is is uh, a curious one for Canada. But you know you've got him, you've got some other options. Again, other guys who who may be uh, in minor league who, depending on their form, will they be considered as well? Uh, you know, it's uh, a very interesting case for for Canada coming in. But yeah, they, it was, I think. Uh, in some sense, it may have been better for the region that Canada qualified because Bermuda just doesn't have nearly as much depth. They're heavily reliant on on two or three players, primarily Kamal Everock and Delbray Rollins. But Canada, I don't think, will do badly. I th- again, it's matchup dependent. A lot of these things are, are matchup dependent. You know, you could be going back to the 2007 World Cup. Ireland loses to Scotland in the the 2005 ICC Trophy Final, and Ireland's reward was getting paired with Zimbabwe and Pakistan, and and uh, Scotland's reward for beating Ireland was getting paired with Australia and South Africa <laughs> in a group with the Netherlands for the 2007 World Cup. And you turn back the clock and you wonder, hmm, you know, would Scotland mm. have preferred maybe to have lost that ICC Trophy Final, and they could have gotten paired with Zimbabwe and Pakistan, and maybe that would have changed the course of history for Ireland and, and Scotland in so many ways. That's an interesting uh, cricketing what-if, isn't it? So, who Canada gets paired with, and who any of the associate teams gets paired with, who, who USA gets paired with in their draw, who, who Scotland gets paired with, who Canada gets paired with, matters. There are certain teams you definitely want to avoid, but it, it's conceivable that Canada, the way they're structured could win a couple games. You never know. Um, but they've got the right mix of ingredients. You've got a, a devastating power hitter at the top of the order in Aaron Johnson. I mean, if you, if you think about recent times, you look at Mohamed Wasim in the UAE helping to beat Ireland and UAE beating New Zealand. If you get somebody who's an X factor at the top of the order. And then you've got a couple other players, at least one in the middle order who can be an X factor in a finishing role. If, if that's Aaron Johnson and Nicholas Curtin, 
that could be what t- takes Canada past a full member. I mean, I, I, one player we haven't spoken about who I'm very high on is Harsh Tucker. Harsh Tucker. Oh, very well. Yeah. Uh, I felt he was going to be a tremendous impact player. And in a different scenario, he probably would have been named player of the tournament instead of Kamal Everett. I mean, he was outstanding on the batting side, made significant contributions with the bat. And then with the ball, he was equally important for Canada. You know, so much attention was given to Kaleem Sana for what he did as as a left-arm pace bowler and Aaron Johnson scoring the century he did and, and some of the explosive betting that he had and the consistency of Dalawal. But, um, you know, besides Curtin, on the final day, I, I would say Harsh Tucker played a hugely significant role for Canada every single match from start to finish. And he's only 25. He's somebody who's born and raised in Canada, has come up through the development system, and I think he's a, a shining light in terms of demonstrating to youngsters in Canada, hey, this is the path you want to follow to success to make it in the senior team. And he's, you know, he, he doesn't embarrass himself in the field either. He's not nearly as good as a, a fielder as Curtin or maybe some of the other players, but he's he's no slouch in the field. And uh, he's just an athletic guy in, in everything he does. And um, I would keep an eye on him potentially to play a, a significant role for Canada in the World Cup, just as he did in the T20 World Cup qualifying campaign. Well, thanks for taking some time out of your morning, PDP. I know you're busy with some cricket in the US. Maybe briefly give us an indication of, of what's going on there and uh, where we can follow you uh, and and uh, you know keep an eye on American cricket that you're covering. I'm currently in Texas in Houston slash Cypress slash Prairie View, depending on if I'm at my Airbnb or at the Cricket Grand. The Prairie View Cricket <laughs> Complex in uh, in an hour northwest of Houston at the first ever history being made, Nick. First ever. Under-17 and under-23 USA Cricket National Championships are being held. And they had three centuries on day one, two in one match in the under-17 competition, and then another century was made in the under-23s. And there were a couple other players who got out in the, in the 90s, or one got out in the 90s and one was stranded in the 90s with his team all out. So there was some highly competitive batting. There was a couple of five-wicket hauls. There was a number of impressive performances across the board from all the players. And it was exciting to see the under-23s in particular because historically there's been a big drop-off after these guys graduate from under-19 level. They, they fall into an abyss and never are seen or heard from again. And so the fact that a number of the under-23 guys in kind of the the 21, 22 year age range were given an opportunity to showcase what they can do and took advantage of it. And, and again, showcased that there's a, a different kind of progression that happens after the age of 19. Some guys who were superstars at under 19 level as 18, 19 year olds, they kind of not necessarily fall back into the back, but other people just catch up. Other people catch up and go past them. And you saw that on day one. And it was uh, enlightening to see how much some of the guys who were kind of fringe players at under 19 level have really taken the time to mature and work on their games and, and hone their skills and are guys who potentially could yet make an impact for USA at senior level. Now that they've demonstrated, Hey, they've continued to, to get better. And it, it's not the end of the world. If, if they're not breaking into the senior team by age 19 or, or 18 and, they're worth keeping an eye on, and I would hope 
that it's not just the people who were at the ground yesterday. I, I certainly hope people around the U.S. scene are, are paying attention to these these guys and um, have them on the selection radar going forward, or at least in the mix for consideration. Sounds exciting, and I'm sure it's something uh, we'll keep an eye on with uh, U.S. correspondent Nate Hayes for Emerging Cricket. And just uh, as an aside, I kind of wish Canadian cricket would do something like that because a very similar issue happens uh, in Canada where, you know, you see guys who do well at the under-19s level and then they just sort of disappear off the face of the earth. Harsh Tack is a, a real exception in terms of having come through the under-19 system without just completely uh, <laughs> just completely vanishing without a trace. So, uh, yeah, something for the Canadian cricket administrators to think about also. Uh, thanks a lot for your time, PDP. Uh, we always love to hear from you, and our listeners can follow you, of course, on Twitter, or X as it's called these days, uh, at Peter Della Pena. You also have a Patreon, which is definitely worth signing up for. Anything else you'd like to plug? No, it's fine. I guess there's the book from a couple of years back, which is also worth looking at as well. Um, But yes, thank you for being on the show. Thanks again. Always a pleasure.